X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It's Thursday, May 21st. Today, back in the day, May 21st, 1918, the U.S. House of Representatives passes the amendment allowing women to vote. And in 1932, after flying for 17 hours from Newfoundland, Amelia Earhart lands near Londonderry, Northern Ireland, becoming the first transatlantic solo flight by a woman. You know, anytime I hear about the transatlantic flights, they don't seem like that big a deal. But put yourself back in time and suppose the first time someone just took off over the ocean. It must have seemed nuts. Also, by the way, in 1832 on this day, the first Democratic National Convention was held. It was in Baltimore. Today on the local Your Quick Six, including election updates, and our partner The Numbers brings a focus on mail-in voting and an interview with Dana Haynes, managing editor of the Portland Tribune. First up, it is today's Quick Six local rundown. The Oregon revenue forecast is in, and it does not look pretty. Why am I talking about the budget before the remaining election results? Because we humanities majors need to care about the math. And because every elected official, no matter how brilliant, will be a servant to the budget realities. Oregon is looking at a $2.7 billion expected drop in revenues for the current budget period, and things don't look like they're going to improve quickly. Economists are now predicting Oregon will bring in $4.4 billion less than formerly anticipated, with a budget running from 2021 to 2023, and $3.3 billion less than expected in the budget after that. Budget cuts will impact contracts with businesses. It'll mean layoffs to teachers, state troopers, health care providers, other public workers, and less money flowing into communities throughout the state will further depress economic activity. Remember, state governments are a big piece of economic activity. A glimmer of good news, some of the expected gap can be covered by the $1.1 billion in excess cash the state had formerly expected to be on hand at the end of the year. There will now be a debate about how much of the reserves Oregon should spend now versus how much it should save for a future potentially even rainier day. House Speaker Tina Kotek said, and I'm quoting, We have strong reserves that should be tapped early to avoid additional damage to our economy. I also believe increased bonding for public infrastructure will help jumpstart the economy and put people back to work. Recognize that means bonding may be paid for by a gas tax, and that would probably mean highway building, transportation projects. You might have heard it here first. When she says public infrastructure, I'm guessing she means roads and bridges. I'm guessing she means the Columbia River crossing, maybe by a different name. So far, Congress has passed a couple bills to aid in coronavirus relief. Neither have gone far enough to address states. Governor Kate Brown is calling on Congress to send more aid. Here is her quote. The latest forecast for state revenue makes it clear that we have tough choices ahead. We will need to tighten belts, make no mistake. The budget gap created by this pandemic is too large to bridge without additional congressional action. And more election results are in. Okay, here are your sweet, sweet election results. These aren't yet certified, but they are a bit more clarified. The Oregonian has called the Secretary of State's race for Shamia Fagan after calling it for Mark Hass Tuesday night. When we started recording the previous episode, Shamia Fagan was down 12,000 votes. Before we finished recording, she was down 9,000 votes. When we woke up, she was down 3,000 votes. Now she's up 2,000 votes. We didn't pile on the Oregonians calling of the race then, and we'll be a little bit humble now. But barring something bordering on a fluke on some of the remaining straggler ballots or challenge ballots, it does look like Shamia Fagan, thanks in big part to somewhere around three-quarters of a million dollars from public labor in the primary, will be running against Republican Kim Thatcher for Secretary of State. And another big, big election news, Mayor Ted Wheeler and Sarah Iannarone are gearing up for a runoff. 
Wheeler's share of the mayoral race has dropped down from 52% to 49.39%, below the magic number to win outright. Ironone rose from 23.62% to 23.84%. Usually, that small change wouldn't matter that much. But when it gets your potential runoff opponent from above 50 to below 50, it's a real big percentage point. And why does it matter? Well, it means Iannarone could still be elected. It also means there are five more months to evaluate the mayor and to hold him to account. And former Mayor Sam Adams has conceded in his bid to be elected to the city council. Commissioner Chloe Udaley will face a runoff with former city staffer Mingus Maps in the fall. Udaley holds 31% of the votes for city commissioner position 4 with Maps at 28.68%. Less than a percentage point more than former Mayor Adams. And Loretta Smith is preparing for a November runoff with Dan Ryan for city council seat number two. Beating out Tara Hurst, Sam Chase, Julia DeGraw, a host of other folks. That was anyone's race. And to hear Bridgeliner tell it, a testament for the need for star voting or instant runoff voting. And a race that's one of the most important in the state that we haven't been paying attention to. Tootie Smith beat Clackamas County Commissioner Jim Bernard, growing the strength of the conservative movement in Clackamas County. I'm telling you, Clackamas County politics is the underappreciated rising dynamic in Oregon. This state elected Republicans to the governor's office for more than a half a century until Washington County flipped. Just saying, watch Clackamas County. And in election news from Baker City, the backhoe can be sold. That on the Baker City election was whether or not to sell a 1995 backhoe. Turns out the Baker City Charter contained a clause that prevents commissioners from disposing of any city equipment worth more than $10,000 without a vote of the people. The ballot actually said the backhoe. And on Tuesday, Baker City residents voted overwhelmingly to sell the 25-year-old backhoe that had been used to haul gravel and clear roads. There were, though, 8% of the people who voted no. I would love to ask them why they voted no. A buyer for the backhoe has yet to be identified. Ever used a backhoe? I'll tell you. Attach an auger to it. It's about 230 times better than the handheld post hole digger for building railroad tie fence to construct feedlot pens at CNB Livestock in Hermiston, Oregon during the summer of 1991, which your dad thought would be a good character building exercise. That was awesome. Your daily dose of data. Oregon has now tested over 100,000 people, just under 4% of those tests coming back positive. Total number of confirmed cases in Oregon is 3,801, with 144 virus-related deaths. And the death toll seems to be dropping rapidly, down 62% this week from last week. The overall case number saw a 25% drop. That's not just flattening the curve. That is bending downward the curve. Testing is up. Positive tests are down. During the week of May 9th to 15th, a total of 16,787 people were tested in Oregon. 438 tested positive. That's 2.6%. That's down from 3.1% who tested positive during the previous week. And unemployment has gone from a historic low to a record high in one month. The percentage of Oregonians without a job went from a record low of 3.5% to 14% in that month. The state lost 266,600 jobs in April. Maybe it's the mark of the beast. According to the Oregon Employment Department, they didn't say the mark of the beast thing. And these numbers may even be significantly understated. For comparison, the Great Recession in 2009, Oregon's unemployment rate was 12%. Oregon's jobless rate is right around the national average, which is 14.7% in April. In terms of job losses... The state's lodging sector shed nearly 60% of its jobs. Restaurant and bars lost more than half. Healthcare and retail categories each lost about 10%. Construction shed 9% of its workforce. 
In Multnomah County, the holdout county is going to brief Portland on reopening plans. County officials are set to meet with Portland City Council today, Thursday, to work on reopening plans. County Chair Deborah Cafori said the county does not have enough money to meet all the requirements and therefore did not try to open on Friday, May 15th. Speaking to the Portland Business Alliance, she said the county is in negotiations with the state and city for the additional funds. Kufori said, and I'm quoting, We have estimated that in order to fulfill what the criteria that the governor's prerequisites have set out for us, it's going to cost us about $75 million for the next year. Frankly, we don't have the money now. Portland received $114 million in federal stimulus compared to $28 million that went to the county. So it seems like what's going on here is the county wants some of the city's money, some of the money the city got from the federal government. The county has met the criteria, including a 14-day decline in COVID-19 hospitalizations and having enough shelter locations for everyone who needs to self-quarantine. The county has not met the requirements, including reducing the impact of COVID-19 on communities of color and having sufficient testing sites accessible to underserved communities. According to Sonia Schmansky, Mayor Ted Wheeler's deputy chief of staff, the city and the county have agreed to split the additional homeless service costs on a 50-50 basis. Meanwhile, Washington and Clackamas counties are set to present their reopening plans to the governor on Friday, are hoping to begin phase one on June 1. Looking for a safe, socially distanced, family-friendly activity? Go on a safari? The Northwest Trek Wildlife Park in Eatonville, Washington has made some changes, so it is now a drive-through safari. You can view elk, bison, longhorn sheep, caribou, moose, and more from the comfort and safety of your own car. The park is getting ready to enter birthing season, which means you might be able to spot some baby animals in real life instead of just on your social media feed or watching Tiger King. The tour launches Wednesday, May 27th. There's a similar drive through attraction in the opposite direction, Winston's Wildlife Safari, known for its highly successful cheetah breeding program. Did I mention Tiger King? It's also open during the outbreak. This is supposed to be the good news section. The drive to get there from Portland is about 50 miles. Ticket prices, about 20 bucks. And there are also lots of parks you can walk around and not engage with wild animals. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. A reminder, X-Ray is offering free spots to businesses and organizations in need from the coronavirus. Submit to the local at xray.fm. And here's Emily Gilliland on What's Next. Thanks, Jefferson. First up, a focus on mail-in voting. Morgan Jones brings her commentary on why it's so scary to some. Of course, we know it's easy in Oregon, but we're encouraging turnout, not trying to oppress turnout. This is Morgan Jones. Let me give you this free game. I'm old enough to remember going with my parents to the church down the street before work and school so they could vote. By the time I was 18, Oregon was entirely vote by mail. Because it was the first way I got to vote, and I'd seen the progression from in-person voting booth to sitting around our coffee table discussing candidates, I assumed everywhere voted by mail. It wasn't until I moved to Denver that I realized Oregon wasn't only in the minority, it was the first. There's a lot of controversy surrounding voting by mail, but as a person that has always voted that way, hearing the arguments against it just seem more sinister than protective. I know you're tired of hearing it, and I'm tired of saying it, but we're somewhere in the timeline of a global pandemic, where we don't know much other than to stay away from other people. Asking people to come out in droves to vote has already proven to be a nightmare and will only be worse if we continue. Many Republicans and their think tanks are staunchly against vote by mail, saying it will swing the door open for voter fraud, the post office wouldn't be able to handle the ballots, or that people will pressure others on how to vote. Oh, okay. Wait until they find out about the internet and cable news. That's going to be a doozy. These are the same people that also claim there is rampant in-person voter fraud, 
even when they win. Just to keep you skeptical of the process and those others, Trump said immigrants and dead people are voting and to watch out at the polls for people voting numerous times. Wait, does Trump think people were voting, going to the bushes, putting on the classic disguise of nose glasses and a hat on just to get back in line and vote again? What in the inspector gadget? These people have zero idea how voting actually works or they are completely disingenuous with their claims. What they really mean is they won't be able to suppress the vote as easily as they are now. Want to know how I know? The child president said, quote, Republicans would never be elected in this country again if it were easier to vote. Oopsies, Donnie said the quiet part out loud again. Yo, ain't toddlers the worst? Always giving up the family secrets at the worst time. Anyway, voting by mail would force some of their very best tactics into retirement, like when they close most of the polling stations, creating lines that stretch blocks and take hours to get through or how states have shortened their early voting periods or gotten rid of them altogether, or the decades of work they've done to create voter ID laws and restrictive registration. We haven't even touched on gerrymandering and the way that they simply just kick people off the voter rolls. Anybody hear that the tantrum king appointed a top donor to be postmaster general? Yeah, let's put a pin in that because I'm positive that's going to matter later. Oregon has automatically registered eligible voters since 2016. When you go to the DMV for a license or ID card, instead of the extra step of filling out a voter registration card, they do it for you, unless you opt out. As of 2020, 90% of eligible Oregon voters are registered to vote and now postage is paid for your ballot. Some of the reasons Oregon's voter turnout continues to be ranked with the few states highest in the nation. The truth is, making voting easier means more people participate. And not only do they know that, they're terrified of it because part of their viability depends on low turnout. Dana Haynes, managing editor of the Portland Tribune, is back to give a rundown of the election results and what surprised him about the races. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, Dana. Glad to be here. What were the big surprises of the evening last night? Well, two of them for me. One was the Multnomah County DA's race. Um, I've been doing this job a long time, and we've never had a competitive DA's race in this county since about 92. So that one was really interesting. And then secondly, I really didn't think Metro was going to be able to pass that homelessness bond measure while the economy was doing its impression of Wiley Coyote going off a cliff. So those are the two that if I was a, had been a betting man, I would have lost big. What do you chalk up the homeless services victory to? And what was the last count we had, about 58%? Yeah, that, that's about what we've got on that, yeah. And the argument against was that this was the absolute wrong time for a tax because the economy is so bad and the unemployment rates are skyrocketing. The argument on the other side was homelessness, it, however you think about it as a moral issue, homelessness is an economic drag. Homelessness makes it harder for the economy to recover. So going after that big time, going after it now will allow us to recover quicker. Voters seem to get that argument. Uh, as, as your listeners will remember, it was a, uh, uh, a 1% tax on individual incomes of more than 125 grand, joint incomes of more than 200 grand, and profits of businesses of more than $5 million. So that might have been part of it, too. It might have been progressive enough that folks said, I'm not going to be paying that one. I'm going to vote for that one. In the other, the gas tax didn't surprise you. That passed handily, 75%. Yeah, I thought that was going to. That one has been around before. It doesn't mean any new money. And that's one of those uh, where you pay your dime and then you seize the impact immediately, or the lack of impact, I should say, as potholes in your neighborhood get fixed up. People can really draw that one-to-one 
connection between that. I pay my gas tax, the road gets fixed. So that one I thought was going to pass again, and it did pretty handily. Is there anything about the Here Together, the Homeless Services Bill campaigning that impressed you, Dana, that feels like that's sort of how, how we got to uh, the result that we've seen? Well, let me say that my newspaper uh, uh, um, ran an endorsement against this. We said that uh, it was too quickly crafted. There weren't enough public hearings. Metro is famous for being the most deliberative and slowest body since the United Nations. But this time they just pushed this thing through really, really fast. And then the pandemic hit. And then the quarantine hit. And the unemployment began to rise. And I thought, my gosh, this was not a well-planned measure uh, from the get-go and then it just didn't react fast enough to pull it back when the pandemic hit so we had predicted that it would fail and we had said you know it probably should this is probably the wrong time for it what what the the message that the proponents continue to put out is no this is absolutely the right time to do it you're going to address one of the anchors that is dragging our economy down in all three of the counties it's homelessness and this is the time to do it and they really stuck to that message i don't think they went really strongly with the message of this is the moral right thing to do there was a lot of the messages we were getting in the letters and the columns that were coming to our paper was the economic argument and it seemed to win what about local legislative races any legislator i do still want to talk about we still do do still want to talk with secretary of state's race but i want to get hyper local uh, that impacts the entire state. What were some of the state legislative races that you found most surprising or most you know, important? Um, a political newcomer, uh, Con Pham, uh, was running for Alyssa Kenny Geyer's seat in, in the House. Uh, Kenny Geyer stepping down. She's a brand new. She's a newcomer. I had never met her. I didn't know her name before the race, and she just absolutely crushed former Multnomah County Chair Jeff Kogan. Uh, she uh, just stomped him and Kogan got under when when last I checked he had under 10% of the vote I thought his name recognition would be enough to make that one interesting and I was really wrong um, we lost a uh, doctor in the legislature when Mitch Greenlick passed away last week he had already announced he wasn't running for re-election so we knew he was going to be going away and we have two physicians uh, that were going to replace him Maxine Dexter is going to uh, look likely to take Mitch Greenlick's uh, seat and Dr. Lisa Reynolds looks quite likely to take the seat on the west side that had been vacated by representative jennifer williamson and most recently her interim replacement akasha lawrence spence so if public health is going to be one of the big issues going to the next legislature the democrats have a couple of more docs uh on on their side for that one so i thought those were really interesting Ginny burdick and rob nose uh, senator burdick representative nose both uh drew the ire of the unions because they voted for pers reform they both got uh, pretty well-funded uh, candidates that jumped in against them, and uh, both of them easily uh, knocked them out. Um, those are the ones that really uh, we were following that we thought were were fairly interesting locally. And when's the Campos won, uh, wins in her what early mid twenties, one of the youngest legislators I think in the history of Oregon. Uh, that was uh, one of the races that we noticed. Uh, we also, looking at uh, Pam Marsh, didn't have an opponent in the in that fifth district. Any other legislative races that you were paying attention to? Those were the ones that we were really uh, that we were really following. Got it. And uh, the to, right now, I will say that 
Pham was amongst the most impressive candidates who came and spoke before our editorial board. She did before we the quarantine happened, and we when we had to start doing you know, Zoom calls to do them. And uh, she came in and said, "I don't know a lot about how the legislature works. There's a bunch of stuff I don't understand. The things I I will have a very steep learning curve. But here's the stuff I do know." And I remember the editorial board members looking at each other and thinking, when a candidate comes in and, and says, I don't know that, and I will need to get up to speed on that, that always impresses the hell out of us. And she was one of those candidates who came in, wasn't blowing smoke. She said, there's stuff I don't know how it works. I'm going to have to pick it up. Let's, uh, let's find out how it works. So that was, we were really watching that place race pretty carefully. Didn't think she was going to win by such a margin. She impressed us as well, and I think did the same thing in our interview with her. Closest race around the state, by the way, that I've seen so far, results still coming in, Selma Pierce ahead of Kevin Chambers in the 20th District Republican primary, right now ahead by 143 votes. That is a close one. Uh, let's, ask wow. a, let's talk about the Secretary of State's race. Uh, impressions. Well, uh, that was a pretty, pretty interesting race, too, because, again, it fell on kind of union party lines. It looked like it was going to be um, Mark Haas, uh versus uh, Jen Williamson, and then Jen uh, fell out uh, really early uh, after um, there had been some revelations about her spending patterns. And when she dropped out, the unions then had to find somebody they wanted to back, and they very quickly found Representative Shamia Fagan and pumped a lot of money into her. She entered the race very, very late, but with a ton of money. She raised more money than the other two candidates combined. When I went to bed last night around 1, it looked like Mark, uh, Hass was winning. When I got up this morning, his margin was not quite as strong. In fact, we, we changed our headline this morning from looks like it's winning to winning maybe. Um, and the, uh, So we'll see where that one goes. The uncounted un, uh, votes are mostly in Multnomah County. I think he's going to do well in Multnomah County, so I suspect he'll keep that lead. Um, he's the most experienced guy there. He's been on the legislature for a long, long time. You served with him. Uh, he uh, he uh, um, has been in appropriations. He understands that side of the business. So um, that race I thought was going to be pretty close. I thought it was going to be a little tight. And right now, he's eking out a win that, uh, if I were to guess, I would say he'll hold on to. I want to talk, Dana, you have worked in City Hall. I want to talk about those positions two and four. Position two, Loretta Smith, as you mentioned, way out in front. Looks like she'll be in a runoff with potentially Dan Ryan. Anything surprising about those dynamics? We knew that there were a lot of candidates competing, some of which were career politicians, nonprofit executive directors, etc. What do you think about Loretta versus Dan? Um, well, first off, that was the, the, a couple of those races drew just a ton of candidates. And with that many people, if you've got you know, 9, 10, 12 folks running, you're going to uh, have a very uh, diffused vote. So uh, in that case, name recognition was going to carry some sway. And um, there were just so many folks running, and it could get so confusing. We thought name recognition would end up being a factor in that one. And you all uh, endorsed Dan Ryan. Dan, does not, oh, you all endorsed Dan Ryan, is that right? Yes, we did. Uh, he's uh, he's uh, been awfully impressive as the guy at all hands raised. Uh, he uh, he has um, when he had got the job, he essentially created the job. It used to be the uh, foundation for Portland Public Schools, and he's the one who went to Portland Public Schools and said, "All of the not all of a great deal of the poverty is on the east side. It's in Park Rose, and it's in Centennial, and it's in David Douglas. I want us to support them as much as PPS." And he made that argument, and they agreed, and they let him do it. 
Um, so he's been fighting issues of uh, diversity and uh, equity, and he's been raising a lot of money, and he's good with the business community, and he's got, he's got that equity lens. So we really thought he was going to be a very, very strong candidate. Mm-hmm. We also know that uh, C- uh, Commissioner Smith was a bit divisive when she was in office. There were people who worked at the county and people who had been in elected officials in the county who didn't get along with her very well. And um, it is going to be somewhat interesting, I think, if she is an elected member of the Portland City Council, mm-hmm. some of the folks and some of the amenities that had been built up in the, in the Multnomah County Commission are still there, and if Tootie Smith ends up running the Clackamas County Commission. We're going to see some interesting dynamics at the uh, metropolitan county level in the tri-county region, I think. I want to talk about that one before you go. I want to talk about that Clackamas County race. Tootie Smith, uh, former legislator, as I recall, re-emerging a political scene to uh, maybe beat Jim Bernard as Clackamas County chair. What role do you think the push to reopen the economy in Clackamas County and Clackamas County being one of the three counties along with Washington County, Multnomah County that didn't immediately uh, file for uh, reopen status under the phase one criteria for Governor Brown. What role do you think that might have played or what other dynamic do you think was going on there? Let me say in full disclosure that my cohorts at the Lake Oswego and West Lynn and, and Oregon City's papers were covering that race much closer than I, but I can tell you this. Uh, one of my one of the papers that's within my uh, orbit is the Sandy Post, and the Sandy mayor is amongst the Clackamas County mayors who are pushing very, very strongly against the county and wanting an immediate opening up. They wanted us to go to phase three, open everything up right away. There's a big push towards that out in that sector of Clackamas County. We sometimes forget how big Clackamas County is. It's a, it's physically, you know, geographically, a huge county, and a bunch of it is 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 rural. Um, and I think the dynamic, I didn't write about this race, but I was following it for my cohort papers, and I believe that the dynamic about getting out of the quarantine and getting out of the pandemic probably ends up playing quite a role there. It's worth reminding listeners, too, that that county has seesawed back and forth between pretty darn conservative and, and more moderate factors now for a couple of decades. It's uh, been pretty strong swings between a conservative and a more urban and moderate uh, wing of that county. So if uh, Tootie Smith hangs on and if she's going to be the new chair, it'll be a swing back to the right and uh, a person who is, has a reputation of being pretty divisive. And one of the, uh, one of I think, the places where I'm hoping that the press, that the combined collective media can get better at is understanding, is covering what happens with political movements. There's so much focus that uh, that readers, that listeners, that voters pay attention to personalities, and it can be harder to get the information and explain the information of what's happening to movements. And there has been, I would argue, a maybe just observe, an under-prioritization of Clackamas County among progressive organizers. And meanwhile, there has been significant money put in, national money put in on various occasions to build a more uh, conservative electorate in Clackamas County. I think that's one of the more important uh, political dynamics happening in the state. I think that's really good, and I think that's, it's worth reminding ourselves that there is a difficult, it's difficult finding the center of Clackamas County. I mean, if you talk about Washington County, you really know you've got to go to Hillsborough, you've got to go to Beaverton, Tiger, Tualatin. That's where the, the votes are. That's where the people are, and you can lock that down. But Clackamas County tends to be... Um, 
Uh, yeah, harder, harder to wrap your arms around. I mean, a, a good example of how diverse and strange Clackamas County is is the town of West Lynn, because West Lynn's business community is attached to Oregon City. Its arts community is attached to Lake Oswego, and its school district is attached to Wilsonville. So if you stand in downtown, if you can find downtown West Lynn, by the way, there's no downtown per se. If you stand anywhere in West Lynn and you ask them, with whom is this town uh, connected? If you talk to 100 people, you may get five, six, seven different answers. That's kind of a microcosm of how Clackamas County is. If you want to try and get the county, you, of course, Lake Oswego, Milwaukee, that makes good sense. But as we said earlier, it stretches all the way to Mount Hood. It is a big geographic county, and there's a lot of people. It's not uh, Malheur County. I mean, there's a lot of folks living out there, too. So it's just a harder, harder beast to wrap your arms around if you're an organizer. I appreciate that point, and I'm looking at the map of it right now. I mean, yeah, Clackamas County goes all the way to Mount Hood and goes all the way down to southeast of Silverton. It is an enormous geographic area, and you're right. Obviously, folks in Multnomah County know Portland and Gresham. Folks know Beaverton, and even you know, it goes out to Forest Grove and understand Washington County. I appreciate that point. I won't just repeat it all. Uh, any other race you want to make sure that we at least touch upon before we bid us, ourselves adieu? Those were all the big ones that we covered want to say dana thank you so much for spending your time this morning thanks for working and doing the work that you do and i hope you have a wonderful day well i really appreciate it and appreciate you guys a great deal thanks much thanks to morgan thanks to dana for joining the local and thank you for listening to the local your hometown in about 30 minutes please do share the podcast share it with like three folks today these have been good episodes you can share yesterday's too share it with a few friends and if you got story ideas send us an email at the local at xray.fm we can be together while we're apart talk to you tomorrow. In the meantime, stay safe and thank you, democracy. X-Ray.